Father God, by your spirit, please show us Jesus this morning. Amen. We're doing a couple of things differently today, as you might have seen from a flip chart. Um, but to start with, uh, I want you to close your eyes. Imagine in your head the one thing from your life that you would be most ashamed of everybody here seeing. If it were up on the screen behind me, imagine that thing, picture it in your mind, the thing that you would be most ashamed of. Okay, open your eyes. We all know what it is to feel guilty, to be guilty. We all know what it is to feel guilty. Our society doesn't like talking about guilt. Um, our society uh, likes to use lots of euphemistic words for it to um, explain it away. Um, at the same time, our society loves talking about guilt. We demonize people. Uh, we say they are evil, they are beyond reproach. But when it comes to ourselves, no, we just make mistakes. We just made the wrong decision. We don't like guilt attached to ourselves. But we all know what it is to be guilty. For some of us, um, perhaps it's something in the past, a massive event that we just can't move on from. A broken relationship from many years ago that still hurts, that still makes us feel guilty. An accident that we blame ourselves for. Something we did that we forever try and atone for. Maybe uh, guilt is a present experience for us. Something we feel each day. A recurring habit of something we know is absolutely wrong, but we keep going back and we keep feeling the guilt that sticks to us, that we can't seem to break free of. Maybe we surprise ourselves and don't live up to our own high expectations of what we should be like. Shortly after Kat and I got married, uh, we had our first fight about what was really a very trivial thing, but the fight itself wasn't trivial. We argued about scissors um, and where the scissors uh, should live. Um, I had one view that there were kitchen scissors and there were other scissors, and other scissors should not live in the kitchen. Um, Cat saw scissors that should live together with other scissors. It was a trivial issue, but the fight itself was not trivial because I thought that I was a great husband. So far, we'd gone without fighting, and suddenly here I was shouting at my wife because of scissors. I didn't live up to my own expectations. I felt guilty. What kind of husband was I? She's forgiven me, I think. Maybe we don't live up to our own expectations. Or maybe, actually, uh, you're here and, uh, like many people in our culture, guilt is not something you would uh, associate with yourself. Um, here is um, a picture of a, a guy called Mark Salling. Mark Salling is an actor, or I should say he was an actor. Um, he was uh, 
in a TV show popular with lots and lots of teenagers around the world, and he was discovered with images of child abuse on his computer, thousands of them. And he felt the burden of being caught with those, the loss of reputation, and he ended up killing himself. But here is what his publicist said after his death. Mark was a gentle and loving person, a person of great creativity, who was doing his best to atone for some serious mistakes and errors of judgment. For many of us, uh, that's what we think of uh, with guilt. We've just made mistakes, errors of judgment. In his case, it's obviously wrong to think that. Clearly, he was guilty. But we will often play down our own guilt and just say, no, we just made a mistake. We're not guilty. Guilt, it sticks to us. We feel it. It is hard to break free of. So what does God have to say to us? Well, in this passage that uh, David read to us, we uh, see two things. We see the guilt of humanity. We see the guilt of humanity, but we also see the grace of God. Now, where are we in the story? Jesus has been betrayed by Judas. He has been handed over and tried by the religious leaders. But the religious leaders know that they don't have the authority to condemn him to death. That's something that the Roman governor has to do. And so, verse 1, early in the morning, all the chief priests and the elders of the people made their plans how to have Jesus executed. So they bound him, they led him away, and they handed him over to Pilate, the governor, So our context here is the trial of Jesus. But what Matthew does is he presents, if you like, a rogues gallery of humanity. He shows us individual after individual, character after character, who are guilty in many ways. In this trial of Jesus, only one person is innocent. And it's Jesus himself. Everybody else is guilty. And what Matthew's doing here is he's kind of hammering home the guilt of humanity. We find ourselves standing on trial with each of these people. So first we have Judas, verses 3 to 5. Look down with me. When Judas, who had betrayed him, saw that Jesus was condemned, he was seized with remorse and returned the 30 pieces of silver to the chief priests and the elders. I have sinned, he said, for I have betrayed innocent blood. What's that to us? They replied, that's your responsibility. So Judas threw the money into the temple and left. Then he went away and hanged himself. At first blush, it looks like here, actually, we have someone who is repentant, a guilty man, one who betrayed one of his friends for money, out of greed. But 
but it looks like perhaps he has, in fact, repented. I have sinned, he says, for I have betrayed innocent blood. But is it what it first seems? I think here we have an example of what Paul uh, refers to later in 2 Corinthians verse, uh, chapter 7, verse 10, as uh, worldly sorrow. This is what uh, Paul says. Godly sorrow brings repentance that leads to salvation and leaves no regret. But worldly sorrow brings death. Judas is seized with remorse when he sees that Jesus is condemned. It's like the, the weight of what he's done suddenly grips him and he feels the guilt. And he has to do something to get rid of it. So he comes to the chief priest and says, I've sinned, I've sinned, I've betrayed innocent blood. And they're having nothing to do with it. So what does he do? I'll give the money back. I'll throw the money into the temple. Does that remove his guilt? No, he still feels it. And ultimately, as Paul says in 2 Corinthians, worldly sorrow brings death. We cannot remove our guilt by ourselves. We cannot atone for it ourselves by giving back the money. By doing, We have to repent. Godly sorrow brings repentance that leads to salvation and leaves no regret. But Judas here, he doesn't return to Jesus. He throws his money in the temple and he goes and kills himself. <laughs> He hates the feeling of guilt. Have you been there? I certainly have, where I've done that thing that I've sworn never to do again, and I feel the guilt, and I hate it, but I hate how it makes me feel. I don't hate it because I've betrayed God. I don't hate it because it is wrong. I hate it because it makes me feel guilty. And so what do I do? I try and cover it up. I don't repent. I try and cover it up. I distract myself. I do something else to remove that feeling of guilt rather than turning back to God. And ultimately, often, I will return to do it again. It's Mark Salling. It's Mark Salling not saying, I'm sorry, I did something wrong. Mark Selling, who can't deal with the burden of his guilt, and so he kills himself. And his publicist just says he made errors of judgment. It's the judge going to the judge and saying, I am sorry, I am guilty for having been caught. I hate the fact that being here in this courtroom makes me feel so disgusting. But I'm not truly repentant for my crime. Next, we have the Jewish leaders. Verses 6 to 10. The chief priests pick up the coins and said, It is against the law to put this into the treasury since it is blood money. So they decided to use the money to buy the potter's field as a burial place for foreigners. The chief priests have brought Jesus to this point because of their loss of status, their fear that he is usurping them in the minds of their people. They were the respectable ones, and suddenly here is this upstart who is taking the limelight 
who is saying that they, they are the sinful ones. They don't speak for God. Their status is threatened. And so out of self-interest, wanting to continue as they have done before, wanting to, wanting just everything to be as it was, they hand him over to be killed. They want him out of the way. And look here, verse 6. The chief priest picked up the coins and said, it is against the law to put this into the treasury since it is blood money. They know what they've done is wrong, but they excuse it. Now, I have a friend, um, and at a, a Christian Union uh, evangelistic talk that uh, we were both helping at, uh, my friend and I were in a conversation with a guest at the talk, and my friend Jack, uh, after this long discussion where uh, the guy just kept on throwing up all sorts of objections to the Christian faith, which Jack and I were patiently answering, eventually Jack challenged him and said, if Jesus appeared right here, right now, and showed you the, the holes in his hands and said, look, I'm here, will you follow me? What would you do? If you had that much evidence, what would you do? And the guy responded, no, I wouldn't follow him. I don't want to. I'm happy with my life the way it is, thank you. The Pharisees don't want Jesus around. Out of self-interest and pride, they push him away. Here's a writer called Aldous Huxley, and this is what he says on the same topic. I had motives for not wanting the world to have a meaning, and consequently assumed that it had none and was able without any difficulty to find satisfying reasons for this assumption. For myself, this was essentially an instrument of liberation from a certain system of morality. We objected to the morality because it interfered with our sexual freedom. Here is someone whose self-interest leads him to refuse to accept anything about the true the true God that is out there. He says he has motives for not wanting him to be there, and so he convinces himself that there is nothing. And this is the religious leaders. They convince themselves that Jesus, he can't be from God. They've seen the evidence, they've seen the miracles, and yet they condemn him to death. Next, from those who are actively opposing Jesus to someone who just stands passively. And we have Pilate, verse 11. Jesus stands before the governor and the governor asks him, are you the king of the Jews? Here is someone who, actually they're confronted by Jesus for the first time and they think, this man is innocent. This man's good. He's done nothing wrong. Verse 14. Jesus made no reply, not even to a single charge, to the great amazement of the governor. Verse 18 says, Pilate knew that it was out of self-interest that the religious leaders had handed Jesus over to him. He knew that this man was innocent. His wife even has a dream, verse 19. Don't have anything to do with that innocent man. I have suffered a great deal today in a dream because of him. Pilate knows that this man is innocent, but have a look at verse 24. When Pilate saw that he was getting nowhere with the crowd, but that instead an uproar was starting, 
He took water and washed his hands in front of the crowd. I am innocent of this man's blood, he said. It is your responsibility. Here is someone who goes with the flow. He doesn't want to rock the boat. He's swimming downstream where it is easier. That's me. Is that you? Where society pushes us in one direction and it is just easier to go with the flow, not to make a fuss. For me, it's uh, particularly the TV show that everyone is watching and talking about that I know will suck me in and show me pictures I don't want to see, make me feel things I don't want to feel, espouse a worldview that I don't want to believe, but make it all so plausible. I know that it will be bad for me, and yet I'm drawn just to watch it. Because everyone is. Don't you want to fit in? Don't you want to have that conversation? Don't you want to be able to talk about whatever TV show it is for you? Maybe it's the third, the third pint in the pub. And you know that you're going to get drunk, but it is just easier because everyone is. Maybe, maybe it's picking on that person whom everyone dislikes because standing up for them would just be too difficult. Pilate gives in to peer pressure. And as such, he is just as guilty as the religious leaders who are actively opposing Jesus. Is that us? And the rogue gallery continues. And now what Matthew does is he, if you like, he widens his net to catch us all as we see the guilt of the crowd. First, let me write up Pilate's. guilt of the crowd. Verse 20, the chief priests and the elders persuaded the crowd to ask for Barabbas and to have Jesus executed. Which of the two do you want me to release to you? Asked the governor. Barabbas, they answered. What shall I do then with Jesus, who is called the Messiah? Pilate asked. They all answered, crucify him. Why? What crime has he committed? Asked Pilate. But they shouted all the louder, crucify him. Verse 25, the people answered, his blood is on us and on our children. The crowd, if you like, are a summary of all the previous ones because what it comes down to is, as we've heard earlier today, Jesus is the king. We sang of his kingship. We heard from the Psalms about his reign, his rule. Here is the king. And we want him out of the way. We want the crown on our own heads, not on his. But his crown, it ain't big enough for the both of us. 
so he's got to go. And there's one way to get rid of a king, if you know your history. What's the one way to get rid of a king? The king has to die. This this sums up all of the previous ones. Judas betrays him. He refuses to come back to him to ask for forgiveness. The religious leaders, they want him out of the way. They want to be king. Pilate, he is afraid of the crowd. He gives in to them because he wants to keep his power. The crowd, they don't want a king to tell them what to do. And so they kill him. One final rogue for the gallery. And that is Barabbas. Now again, I want you to imagine. Imagine yourself in Barabbas's shoes. Imagine yourself sat in that cell. Probably been there for weeks. Chained to a guard. <coughs> smell the smell, the stink. See the darkness. Feel the despair. He knows he is guilty. He knows that what he has done deserves death. He knows it. He is a rebel. He is a murderer. He has committed insurrection against the Romans. He, well, he knows that the cross is waiting for him. And so when another guard comes to lead him out before the judge, before the governor, Imagine what Barabbas is thinking. He knows his time has come. And he arrives and he sees there, over the other side of the governor, a man, broken, bloodied, bruised, beaten. And he hears the governor call, Who do you want me to release to you? Jesus Barabbas? Or Jesus the Messiah. And the penny drops. That's Jesus. That's, if you like, the complete polar opposite of you. You are the rebel, the warrior, the murderer. He preaches peace. You. You are violent. He is gentle. You'd even heard that he's raised people from the dead. You'd killed people. What is he doing there? And then you hear the crowd cry, crucify. And the guard comes over to you and those shackles on your wrists that have been there for so long, rubbing against your skin, they're removed and the blood flows back to your fingers. You get pins and needles. And you're led out into the, the approaching dawn, and you are free. Here we have a wonderful picture of what happens to all of those who put their trust in Jesus. Because the one innocent character in this trial is the one who is condemned 
in our place. Like Barabbas, we deserve death. Like Barabbas, Jesus takes that death for us. Innocent Jesus saves guilty humanity. That is the conclusion of this trial. Innocent Jesus saves guilty humanity. And it's like all of the things that we had on this flip chart. All of these things, they are completely covered. All of the guilt of humanity completely covered by the one man's innocence. Innocent Jesus saves guilty humanity. Whoever we are, whatever we've done, all the things that we've written up here, and I could write more. I could write more. Innocent Jesus saves guilty humanity. Now you might say to me, but Matthew, you don't know what I've done. You don't know what I've done. You don't know my past. You don't know that event many years ago. You don't know what I do in the darkness of my room every night. You don't know who I am. You don't know what's in here. But the fact is that it doesn't matter. Whatever I write on here, I could put the whole thing in darkest ink with the worst thing you could think of. And Jesus' innocence covers it totally. Whatever you've done, whoever you are, Jesus' innocence can cover your guilt. And so what's the invitation for us all this morning? Well, the invitation from Jesus is, will you let me take your guilt Will you let me take your guilt? What would it look like to say yes to his invitation? Well, for many of us here, uh, we'd say we are Christians. We know the forgiveness of Jesus. But yet still we carry around that weight of guilt. What he did back then when we became a Christian that was all very well he forgave our sins but we carry around that guilt with us still we keep sinning what what should we do well friends the the innocence still covers us today Jesus righteousness still covers us today We keep adding things to this page. Always, throughout our life, we will keep adding things. It doesn't change the fact that Jesus' innocence is covering it. When God looks at us, that is what he sees. So for those of us who are carrying around that weight of guilt, we can take it to him. Jesus will take it from us. We don't need to feel that guilt anymore. Let me tell you about a friend of mine uh, called Coral. Coral felt guilt about her body. It was big in all of the wrong places. She felt guilt about failure, 
about how she didn't live up to anybody's expectations, let alone herself. She starved herself to try and atone for that guilt, to give her one thing in her life that she could do, and it didn't work. It took her to hospital. And then she came to know Jesus. And in Jesus, she saw all of the guilt and the shame that she felt about who she was, what she was like. It was lifted away from her. She didn't need to carry around that guilt anymore. It turned her around. Maybe you're here and actually... This isn't something that you've thought about before necessarily. The guilt in your life isn't something you've ever felt like you could deal with. Well, let me tell you about my friend Jim. Jim uh, had all sorts of problems in his life. He'd done things that in a broadly, uh, I look at and I think broadly respectable people here, Jim had done some things that we probably don't mention in polite company. He'd gone to prison. He was living on the streets, and a friend dared him to go into a church. Just said it would be a laugh. Jim went in, and he was, he was converted. He heard that all the things that he'd done, the gambling, the girls, all of those things that had let him down, the weight of failure that he carried around were lifted off him. And he still struggles, but there is such a joy in him and a desire for other people to know that same joy. Innocent Jesus saves guilty humanity and it changes us. So how might we respond? Well, there's all sorts of different ways. Maybe as I've been talking, you've thought, that picture that I asked you to imagine at the start, actually, I need to talk to someone about that. Today would be a great chance to do that. Um, come chat with a friend, chat to a home group leader, one of the elders, come talk to me afterwards. Take that guilt to Jesus. He will take it from you. Or maybe what I said about that recurring habit, the thing you keep going back to, maybe that has really struck you. Well, in that moment where you're tempted to just distract yourself from the guilt that you feel, why not in that moment remember Jesus' innocence can cover it? Don't distract yourself from your guilt. Cling to Christ quickly. Or maybe, like my friend Jim, you're come into church and maybe it was just out of habit, maybe it was something you do every week maybe this is the first time you're here and it's the first time you've been struck by that guilt that we all have, that we all share here none of us are excluded maybe for you, today would be the time to come to Jesus for the first time 
I'm going to pray in a moment, and one of the things I will pray is for those of us in that situation to come to Jesus. What, for you, does it look like? And before I close, imagine with me again. Imagine this church, a group of people who know that they are guilty, but know that Jesus' innocence takes their guilt. Imagine the openness. Imagine how open we would be able to be with each other, knowing that there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Imagine this city where people owned up to their guilt and shame and repented and turned from it and asked for forgiveness and knew the forgiveness of Jesus. Imagine the transformation that that would bring. Imagine this country. Imagine everyone knew yes I am guilty but yes I am forgiven wouldn't that transform this country wouldn't it transform this city wouldn't it transform this church if we knew that wouldn't it transform you knowing the guilt is taken away Because innocent Jesus saves guilty humanity, and that's us. Let me pray. Father God, we admit to you our guilt and our need of your grace. We have done so much that we shouldn't. We continue to do so much that we shouldn't and neglect the things that we should do. We stand before you as those guilty in need of forgiveness and we praise you, Father, for the righteousness, the innocence, the perfection of Jesus that covers us all. Father, for those of us who have not yet come to you, Father, I want to pray on their behalf. Please, forgive us for pushing Jesus out of the way give us a faith in him help us trust his innocence as he dies in our place and change us from the inside out we pray Father